Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh boy, Wizard and the Bruiser is going back out on the road with page seven. That's right, round two of Release the Butthole Cut Tour. Holton. When's that happening? June 21st will be in Portland, Oregon. June 22nd, Tacoma, Washington. July 11th, Oklahoma City. July 12th, Kansas City. July 13th will be in St. Louis, Missouri. Where can we get tickets, Jake? Lastpodcastnetwork.com. Get your tickets at lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody. It's your child prodigy, Bruiser Holden McNeely, and I'm going through a very difficult time in my life right now. Needle in the hay. Needle in the hay. Needle in the hay. And I'm Jake, your wily wizard or bruiser, whatever you want, buddy. Uh, And let me just say before we get started, I'm sorry for your loss. Your mother was a terribly attractive woman. (laughs) (laughs) Love that line. We got typefaces, scumbag dads, puppetry, and claymation. (laughs) We got little twerky things, bridge invasion, hits all day. Absolutely. Uh, Screen resolutions, uh, wide angle lenses, symmetrical framings. Uh Everything's crazy in Wes Anderson land. I have to agree. Agree. I am just a massive, massive Wes Anderson fan. I'm one of those. Maybe you look at me like I'm one of those suckers. I'm one of those mm. ones that get pulled in every time. But there's just something about his style, his actors, his sensibility, his comedy sensibility, the way he melds comedy with tragedy in these beautiful ways. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm in love with that that made up version of New York. Uh, that he presents to us and stuff like Royal Tannenbaums, you know, being a huge like J.D. Salinger fan growing up and and really into all that sort of things. I'd even lump in Bill Watterson being just a major fan of of uh, that kind of work, um, you know, you know, a. Like like the child prodigy family concept, or uh, in the case of Moonrise Kingdom, which might even be my favorite at this point, at least, definitely my favorite of the more modern Wes Anderson pictures for sure. Moonrise Kingdom captures what it is to fall in love or whatever you want to call it with uh, someone for the very first time at a very young age and what that feels like and what what you wish that could be, you know? Uh, in terms of a love story, it's just I just think, and then and then 
his regular stable of ensemble actors. I mean, I have I think he wins for best cast like oh, time God. and time again. Budapest uh, Hotel. Uh, uh, the new one, Asteroid City, is absurd. Like every single one of his movies, Fantastic Mr. Fox has the most ridiculously talented, stacked cast of actors that return to his movies time and time again, which is a testament to how great he is to work with, how how awesome uh, the product is every single time out of the gate, pretty much. He's just a, a marvel to me. He's got a career I w- only wish I could have. I just love, and he's one of the few true auteurs that we have mm-hmm. today in terms of directors. And then mix the- So you're nailing a lot of the things that make Wes Anderson movies compelling, and yet you're trying to... You already admitted it was in the tone of your like uh, spiel that you feel like there's something to apologize for. Or, or like, that there yeah, is yeah. Like some kind of... like. That it's not cool to truly and sincerely enjoy his movies. And I think a big part of that is the fact that uh, there was like a solid moment in the 2000s where like twee, uh, stylistically cute and kind of fanciful things were all the rage um, in, you know, whether it was 500 Days of Summer, Amelie. Uh, stuff like the uh, the person was, Zoe Deschanel, just her. Yeah, <laughs> and the thing about it is, Wes Anderson movies are very much an auteur thing. They are all born from his individual fascinations, his individual obsessions, uh-huh. his individual experiences. Even though he lives kind of a private kind of life, but there's a recurring theme of like broken men and like, uh, you know, selfish men or like men that are stuck in a childlike state, men who are like uh, double dealing, men who think highly of themselves, men who are scared. And um, there's even a line in um, uh, Life Aquatic, like right at the end when they're looking for the jaguar, where they're looking at the jaguar shark and uh, uh, the reporter is holding uh, her stomach and is like, you know, in 12 years, he'll be 11 and a half. And Bill Murray just looks right in the camera and is like, that's my favorite age. Like, there is a solid, like, sad 12-year-old boy yes. running through the entirety of, like, the Jungian just soul energy of his movies. And th- there are people that are like, I don't need to understand 12 sad 12-year-old boys. I've never been a sad 12-year-old boy. And for me, boy. that's my shit, motherfucker. I was the sad. I'll out-sad you at oh, 12, man. Kidding, I was the dude? sad. I was quiet. I was quiet with 14 <laughs> W's, bro. They had to invent a new letter for how much I was crying. It, it was unbelievable how awkward and strange I felt and how bad I didn't want to grow up, but then they forced me to. <laughs> and yeah, definitely a lot of that is connecting with his awkward alienation characters that you see time and time again. I, I so connect with those characters. Also, though, I think the reason why I at all feel the need to apologize, which I'm not, I don't apologize. I'm a massive fan, and I love his style, and I, I want him to continue to do it. I think the fact that Wes Anderson is the last man standing, right? who is like, even as we've gone on, uh, especially in our bonus episodes, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, at the sorry state of modern mass media, and the fact that he still gets to make these like, esoteric, fiddly, creative little movies that are like visually distinct, thematically distinct, and structurally distinct. I feel like we are, um, you know, with the release of Asteroid City, his newest movie, 
I think we're allowed to like him. Yeah. I think there is no shame in just looking someone dead in the eye and be like, oh, my favorite director is Wes Anderson. And that's not like a, something you should feel like isn't cool to say. It's because so there's just, I, I was about to say I, the reason why I feel like I have to say that at all is just because I get shocked when I talk to people about his movies and they like hate his movies. And I, I'm always like blown away by that personally, because I do feel that they're at times perfect things. They're, you know, I, I love that he stays in his lane. I love that like he has this very specific world. And I always roll my fucking eyes, especially lately with the AI re, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, creations of his movies, trying to like make fake versions. It's like, it's so, that it's like, you're totally missing the point. Mm-hmm. You're totally missing like, People think too much that it's too predictable and recreatable, and it's like it's not. He he stays yes, he stays within a very specific form and style, but he's constantly using that to surprise you, to subvert expectations, and within that he is constantly. I think like one of the most important things he did was Fantastic Mr. Fox for his career because mm. it just showed like, hey, look, I'm fucking good at this, and I can do this in all different types of formats, and it it will be something different and meaningful every single time. You know, I would hate if he ever felt the need, and which I love that he doesn't, he ever felt the need to switch it up in a drastic way just because of, like, people being like, it's the same thing every day. It's not the same thing every time. And he doesn't, uh, you know, someone, I was reading an interview where someone asked him about, I guess there was a TikTok trend where they were recreating, like, his his style. Mm. And then, of course, the AI stuff. And he's like, I don't look at that stuff. I have no interest in looking that at that stuff. I'm trying not to sit here and he, he talked about like I don't think about the my, the way I make movies unless I'm trying to like do something differently. Mm-hmm. So and that's the only time I ever analyze like what I do is if I'm trying to like create something that's completely like off from what I do. But other than that, I never I never look at what I do. I'm not like that it's not a self-awareness thing. He's just making the movies he wants to make. And I love the movies he wants to make. I uh, get into the gush. I got the great privilege of seeing Rushmore in the movie theater. Uh, his first film's Bottle Rocket. I feel like Rushmore, though, is where he really cements oh, yeah. his... I mean, truly cements his style in Royal Tannenbaums, but Rushmore is like the great beginning of this bizarre, fantastical realism thing that he does, and I um, just laughed so... It just surprised me on every level. I just fell in love with that approach to movie making, with the way he frames things, with the way you know his actors act, with, with the writing and everything. It's just so... It just tickled me, and I remember I got to see with my buddy and his dad and we all three of us walked out of that movie theater being like, wow, this is something holy else and something really, really uh, incredible. And 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 I love the, his movies because, too, with his sense of humor, because so much of that movie and so much of his movies in general, we get it. We just we watched uh, Grand Budapest Hotel together as a group and you see it all throughout that as well, where everything is so formal and fancy and nice and highfalutin and you know, you think that the, that this guy's really got his nose turned up when it comes to stuff, and then all of a sudden, you've got like the Vietnam War play, or mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, just Bill Murray, uh, fucking, you know, his whole character with the cigarette in his mouth, j- diving off the diving board, and just like talking about fingering <laughs> this, you know, the lie about fingering the teacher, and all this kind of stuff, all this like weird, dirty, like uh, like blue off. Mm-hmm 
just it just so perfectly contrasts the really formal style and look, and you see that in so much of his stuff. I mean, Grand Budapest, the the fingers uh, getting cut mm-hmm. off moment, or that ama- my one of my favorite moments in his movies is in that movie. We all we all laughed at it when Ray Fiennes is in the uh, confessional booth and he finally just cracks. He's just like, just tell me what the fuck is going on. This is a fucking nightmare. And like, it's so funny. And like outside of his character, who's been very like prim, proper, um, sophisticated, prim, proper, you know, and it's just so great. And he does that magic trick. He pulls it off so well throughout all of his films. I just, I love the attention to detail. I love, I, you know, and so, I think I've seen almost all of his movies in the movie theater. I I think there's a couple, I believe French... Uh, uh, French, uh, fuck. French Dispatch, which 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 French Dispatch. went right I, to streaming. I believe, oh, okay. Well, there you go. So I saw that obviously at home then. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, I've seen his movies in the theater, and it is like one of the very. It's like him, Tarantino. Super Mario Bros. movie. No, it's like, but there's very few directors where I'm like, oh, their shit, I have to see in the theater. And I'm not talking about a horny whale movie because I'm going to, it just came out on Disney Plus and that's where I will watch that trash. Okay. Are you talking about Avatar 2? (laughs) Because the love between the Tulkun and especially Payakan is one of filial appreciation and communal understanding. (laughs) And I won't have you fucking flippantly disregard the single greatest tale of our modern era. (laughs) So cavalierly. Good sir. Why didn't they just call it horny whales, Jake? Horny whales. At no point does any of the Navi sexually engage <laughs> with their soul brothers and sisters of the Tulkun. Yeah, how would they do it? They how would they even they'd have to put their entire body in that hole? Well, I mean, to be fair, the Navi, as as, as described in the uh novelization, have extremely pliant orifices. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so what's your relationship? With the works of Wes Anderson, Jake. I don't think it's quite as intimate as mine, as fanatical as mine, what? but well, what do you got? I mean, first of all, I also had my moment of Wes Anderson awakening uh, in the theater, seeing Rushmore in 1998. Uh, Whoa! Yeah, I was, this is- I'm, I underestimated yeah. you, Jake. I apologize. Well, all you go on about, all the. whenever I ask you about great film, you just start talking about the, the holes of a whale. <laughs> and I, I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't know what's going on. I know what is going on far better than you do. You <laughs> fucking flippant, fucking snarky little boy, disrespecting <laughs> the works of a true cinematic titan, <laughs> a.k.a. Mr. James Cameron. Um, anyway, it was 1998. Uh, I was a, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Uh, I was, I was, I believe I was going into the city with my dad to see some comedian that I saw in Comedy Central. And I was like, you know, begging him to like, to go see it with me. And, um, we had just a couple of hours to kill before the show. And my dad just like out of nowhere, just was like, Hey, there's this movie playing like right in the next 15 minutes right by us. And I read really good things about it in Entertainment Weekly. I think we should give it a shot. And I was like, what? And, you know, there's nothing about it except maybe the presence of Bill Murray appealed to me. But I had no idea what to expect. I literally had no clue. And I had never seen a movie like this. I had never seen something done so stylistically, something, you know, with the uh, various curtains and the staging uh, just the dry comedy of just, God, that one scene where it's like, these are OR scrubs. Yeah. Oh, are they? Just like, 
the precociousness of Max Fisher just wanting to be perceived as wiser beyond his years, like felt so true to life. And it, it tapped into this 12 year old sad boy energy that I myself was currently going through. You know, falling in love with the cute teacher, like, you know, uh, at once, like forming a relationship when and like with a mentorship with an older uh, male figure, but then also feeling a weird like uh, rivalry with them. All of these things that I never saw kind of acknowledged before, um, except for the uh, trying to seduce a, a grown woman as an underage boy by lying your way into her bedroom. That didn't happen. I did not resonate with that. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But we walked out of the thing. Um, my dad was just completely floored. Uh, you know, the soundtrack of all these like 1960s, vaguely lesser known uh, British invasion songs, you know, you know, stuff besides just the Beatles, like everything about it just like completely blew us away. And we spent like the next the rest of like the comedy show is long forgotten. I don't even remember who we went out to see, but like. Just the rest of the night, we were like, damn, that movie was really good, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, it was really different. It's just, and, you know, just the way that it's, the the going thing throughout all of Wes Anderson's movies is that everything from the typefaces to the uh, narration to the various, you know, kind of uh, framing devices where you are explicitly told this is a fictional tale. And like you mentioned, the ways that, like, the character's crude behavior kind of breaks out of these like staid kind of vintage styles in a way that catches you off guard, but in a way that rings true because, you know, the men of all these eras, whether it's the thirties and forties in Grand Budapest Hotel or the sixties and seventies in um, Life Aquatic, you know, these were flawed, weird, like it's, it's this, it's this knowing kind of appreciation for the fact that like these auteurs and creators that like, uh, you know, that birthed modern film and modern literature and all these things. We're do we're douche, but we're just as broken as anyone else. And behind the veneer of craftsmanship and stagemanship, there's like this tension that Wes Anderson just loves to revel in. And after that, I was hooked. You know, Royal Tenenbaums was fucking crazy. That one blew me away. I remember walking out of the movie theater with my buddies from a different movie and we just saw that movie poster and we just started laughing. Like, and and I think we were already all Rushmore fans too. And I mean, Ben Stiller in that tracksuit. The tracksuit, all man. of them, that family picture so just tells up so many stories in one image. And I remember getting into that movie with uh, my friends like the weekend it came out and uh, 
even more so than Rushmore, just floored at how funny it was and how just how strong it was, like in, in every sense of the word, and shocking. Like, I mean, obviously the suicide attempt scene and everything just totally came okay, out of fine. nowhere. Besides the suicide and incest, name one shocking thing <laughs> that happens in that movie. I, the soundtrack, too, and, and how much good music I was turned on to. We'll talk about how he puts those amazing soundtracks together. And ever since then, it was always an event, you know, Life Aquatic after that. I saw that in the theater in college. And oh, it's, yeah, amazing. it's just, it's, it's constantly told like it's like the story of my life at this point from high school into uh you know today with the uh, upcoming asteroid city which looks fucking awesome it's it's just it's defined it kind of defined things for me a little bit i can like remember where i was at in my life when certain you know of his movies came out and I uh, yeah, I just appreciate him so much. I was so excited to get to learn about and and there's so many cool little things about his movie making process too that I knew I was going to find out that I'm so excited to get to tell you guys about today. So buckle up, it's Wes Anderson time, baby. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You're telling me these films are colorful and look kind of like silly and handcrafted, but there's a deep sadness within a lot of them. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Wes Anderson is an American filmmaker known for his distinct visual narrative style. I'm sorry. What is his birth name? Uh, Wesley Wales Anderson. <laughs> Wesley Wales. I, I, want to, I want to shove that name into a locker. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, he's directed 10 films with the 11th coming out, Asteroid City. His other works include The Royal Tannenbaums, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Isle of Dogs. I didn't write them all down here. Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. Did I catch them all or, or did I miss one? Uh, Moonrise, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Nice little shotgun blast. Moonrise Kingdom as well. I don't know. For some reason, I didn't put all of his works. Anyways, uh, he was born Wesley Wells Anderson, as we just said, in 1969 in Houston, Texas. His father was a realtor and archaeologist, and his mother worked in advertising and public relations. Kind of shocking, too. Uh, you got that flipped. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his mom was the realtor archaeologist. His father was the PR man. And he always wanted to be an archaeologist, which I think shines through in his work because his locations are immaculate, and he always knows just how to frame them so perfectly to... the Like, when I think of Wes Anderson sometimes without any actors, I think about spaces and rooms and these very like mm -hmm. meticulously designed sets that have all these little details in them that tell the story of any one given character. He does that so well. So it makes sense that he's so knowledgeable when it comes to architecture, interior design, these sorts of things. Uh, so he is the middle child of three boys. His parents divorced when he was just eight years old. A lot of his material, you can find explorations of that situation in a lot of his material. And, of course, he watched a lot of movies as a kid. Anderson said, I loved the Pink Panther movies, and I loved Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Spielberg in general. And then also there was a revival theater in Houston, where I'm from, and that's where I saw the Pink Panther movies and also Hitchcock, and I loved some of those. You know, Hitchcock and Spielberg were kind of the first two filmmakers where I was really aware there is a guy who was behind all of this who we're not seeing. 
As tends to be the case with a lot of directors we've covered on the show, he got into filmmaking when he was just around eight years old. This usually tends to happen with uh, at least that that generation of filmmakers um, when his father got him a Super 8 camera. It's mm. always a Super 8 camera, and they start making home movies. Anderson said, And so I started making little one-reel shorts, which are like three minutes long with my brothers and my friends. And I think the first one was a library book that I was probably not a very good story called The Skateboard 4. I think that was the first one I did. When he was 12, he gave his parents handouts and explained to them that it would be better for the whole family if he were to immediately go to Paris and start a new life there. <laughs> Such a, like, I can't believe that it wasn't a scene in a Wes Anderson movie. This, of course, did not prove to be affected. He effective. He stayed in Houston. But I love that he gave them pamphlets with example mm-hmm. with reasons uh, why he needs to go to Paris immediately. <laughs> And and just shows you what a precocious child, because no, he did not grow up in the Upper West Side. He did not grow up in some highfalutin. I mean, he was in Houston, Texas. And I think that is the contrast. Why we get, he has all these fancy sensibilities, but also like this very blunt, funny, dirty sense of humor oftentimes. Uh, Houston is actually a very interesting location for that sensibility. We've been to Houston. Yeah. And it is like, you know, it was born from like government contracts and chip manufacturing and oil. Like it is a rich suburban kind of like modern American setting completely surrounded by Texas. So like, yeah, you get like the fancy that, you know, he ha- he went to a prep academy with like little uniforms and crests and all that. You know, he had a proper kind of uh, upper class uh, rearing, so to speak. A, ru- a rush more. They literally mm-hmm. use his school that he went to for for the locations oftentimes for shooting that. Yes, the school you're talking about, St. John's School in Houston. And he graduates from there in 1987. Uh, He goes on to attend the University of Texas in Austin after that. And at this college, he becomes roommates with a guy named Owen Wilson. How serendipitous. That is in 1989. He also works part-time as a cinema projectionist at Hogg Memorial Auditorium and becomes a part of a cable access channel in Houston that gave him access to film equipment and enabled him to make some video shorts. He initially fancied himself a writer, but in college he switched gears towards directing and graduates in 1991 with a Bachelor of Arts and a major in philosophy. Yeah, I believe yeah, philosophy. Insane. Yeah. Like yeah, he was a philosophy major and then just started hanging out with his theater buddy Owen and like just got addicted to the craft of bossing around Owen Wilson and telling him what to do and say. It's odd that he didn't choose literature. He was very into short stories and and reading them and writing them. Uh, the, the French Dispatch is his love letter to The New Yorker because he was really into The New Yorker uh, since this time. Uh, but uh, Anderson said, I chose philosophy because it sounded like something I ought to be interested in. I didn't know anything about it. I actually thought like this back in high school mm. and college, by the way. I did things that I thought I was supposed to do as opposed to like what deep down I knew I should. Mm-hmm. It was just, I don't know why. That's why I ended up in acting school. I Deep down, I didn't want to become a serious actor, but I was like, well, I think I'm supposed to become a serious actor. I don't think I'm allowed to be silly for a living. Uh, so anyways, he said, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know what it was uh, what it was talking about. What I really spent my time doing in those years was writing short stories. There were all sorts of interesting courses, but what I really wanted to do was make stories one way or another. So uh, he ends up to uh, they discovered uh, so so Owen Wilson and and Wes Anderson by the way they meet in an interesting way before they become roommates 
They uh, are both in this playwriting class. Apparently, Wes Anderson says, uh, do I have the quote? Yes. They they are in this playwriting class and realize they have a mutual friend. Anderson says, and I can so see a young Owen Wilson doing this, what Anderson describes. Owen just walked up to me in the hall one day and started talking to me as if we knew each other. In fact, what he talked to me about was he asked me which creative writing class he ought to take. He was asking about which professor, and I told him the one I thought. We were both writing short stories, and we started showing them to each other and getting help from each other with them, which is like sounds like a scene in a Wes Anderson, Owen Wilson co-written screenplay, right? And so through that, they end up working on a feature film script called Bottle Rocket. They tried to shoot it themselves by each borrowing $2,000 from their fathers. <laughs> they soon ran out of money and it turned it into a 13-minute short. Through a friend of Owen Wilson's father, they managed to get this short into Sundance and take part in the writing workshop God, they, that getting, they hold there. Getting a stylistic short into Sundance in 1994. Easy money, buddy. The yeah, dream. crazy. It's like, it's like having a tight five minutes at the uh, Catch a Rising Star to use comedy, the only lens through which I can perceive any and all creative endeavors. And that writing workshop's a big deal. You make some major connections there. I have a friend in production that got to be a part of, I believe, that that exact uh, Sunday, like got to go to Sundance a lot and, and, and interact in that. And it's a huge deal for networking and like getting into the business and getting your start. So the feature-length version of the script for Bottle Rocket, it ends up making its way into producer Polly Platt's hands, as well as filmmaker Jim Brooks, uh, and they both decide to back the project. Anderson said, it was the skinniest release, the narrowest release possible. I mean, maybe they put it in 40 screens. It made like $450,000 or something. So it was not seen. And though it was not generally seen by the wider public, enough important people in film production, they saw it and liked it enough that they were able to make one more film. So it's interesting. Uh, yeah. The So the thing with Bottle Rocket, which I watched and um, it's it's an interesting movie, right? It's like not quite Wes Anderson's style, like not quite realized a very young green Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're 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 friends, not yeah. brothers, even yeah. though you can clearly tell that they're brothers. <laughs> it's also weird that Owen Wilson, who has made action, has like an actual billion dollar box office on the back of just being this like laid back, easygoing, like, wow, guy is so intense as Dignan uh -huh. in this movie. He has like this wild energy. You know, he has short hair. He's like almost a, it's completely different. But um. You know, Wes Anderson kind of bumped up against James Brooks, who uh, has been, you know, one of those movers and shakers behind the scenes, like responsible for everything from like The Simpsons to uh, My Mother the Car. He's like just this 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 like insane uh, accomplished producer and writer and director. But, you know, Brooks was like, you know, why are you lingering on this shot? Why is this character doing this? Like, you know, these people have to be likable. This has to be like a real you know, like a crowd pleaser. And for a while, it was kind of vindicated because they would screen the film and people did not get it. Uh, Wes Anderson said in an interview that, you know, he never felt more like confident in his life than when he was making that film. And all of that confidence was destroyed when they screened it as like people would just grab their coats and leave just as the film was starting. People would like leave comments saying that they hated it. Um, Wes Anderson even like remembers the one person who left a like positive note 
at the end of a screening and they met him. I'm, I'm sorry, her, I believe it was a woman. And she was like, I don't know if you remember this, but I was at a screening of Wes Anderson and I really liked it. And he was like, did you write the thing? And she was like, oh my God, that was like, <laughs> he, he remembered the one person that actually liked Bottle Rocket during a test screening. That is how little faith people had in this movie, mm-hmm. and and you get it because it's again it's it shows promise. You have to you have to be a real expert, I think, to see the promise in that movie. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it's the pacing's weird. The it doesn't have that very specific like vision that mm-hmm. Wes Anderson is so known for. Now you see glimpses of it when they're like making the plan for the heist mm-hmm. and the way he like cuts in on the on the map and, and the way it's all, you know, they, the, that goes down. Like there's little moments where like, that's Wes Anderson, but he's still clearly like trying to figure things out. That's why when we get to his next movie, they're able to cobble together, uh, just enough support for this really is what sets him on his career path. That's right. We're talking about Rushmore, a comedy about a 15 year old and a 50 year old who become close friends and then fall for the same woman. The lead character, played by a then-unknown Jason Schwartzman, was an amalgamation of Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson as teenagers. Wilson had the big ambition with the low interest in academia, as well as the crush on the older woman, while Anderson wrote the -the over-the-top school plays. He also shot a lot of the film at his actual private school, as we mentioned, St. John's School. Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson wanted to capture a sort of heightened reality that a high school kid feels, especially when falling in love. And we again get that uh, with Moonrise Kingdom with an even younger uh, kid. But in this movie, again, that that realizing that heightened reality. I mean, that whole opening of Rushmore with the dream sequence where he solves the math problem, I, it just immediately sucks you in as like, that's this kid's fantasy, you know, especially because like everybody, you know, every high school kid's fantasy in, in general is like being in a rock band and like banging chicks and like being a badass, and, you know, driving a fast car. His fantasy is like solving this impossible math problem in front of everyone effortlessly and them all like freaking out about it. It's just immediately something completely different that just makes you want to know more and more about this kid and these characters in this world. And it it is, and then Bill Murray enters the picture, you know, and and it all keeps going from there. And that was such a huge deal because I remember Bill Murray at that time. I think the wasn't last thing, the, like, yeah, this wasn't Lost in Translation, Bill Murray. This yeah. was a like, this was a kind of like trying to figure shit out now that he's no longer the number one box office comedy guy, Bill Murray. Yeah, it, it's it's such a cool c- combo, especially with Jason Schwartzman, who now is, of course, an uh, incredibly successful, highly sought-after actor, but back at this time, he was completely... I think un- Jason Schwartzman peaked when his band sang the theme song to The O.C. Yes, I think that's, that's really the hype. California, here we come! Such a good song! <laughs> Also, you know the story of how he got cast in Rushmore, right? Yeah, so he is, I will say, a little bit of nepotism here. His cousin is Sophia Coppola, right? <laughs> well, but Nick, what's so fun- I mean, you know, growing up as a Coppola boy, you know, he was surrounded by this stuff. Uh, Jason Schwartzman even said in an interview once that when he was a boy, he visited the Coppola Vineyard for a huge family-like get-together, and uh, Nicholas showed up, Nicholas Cage- uh, who, who I believe he is also a direct cousin and not like a removed or second or third, like they are direct cousins. 
Nick Cage showed up wearing all leather on a motorcycle and Schwartzman could not comprehend how he was related to someone that fucking cool. <laughs> it's awesome. And but, but and Schwartzman, this is Schwartzman for you. He shows up at this party, he gets a rented tuxedo and a cane just to be weird <laughs> and shows up at this party. 17 years and old. And the casting director for Rushmore is there talking to Sofia Coppola and she's like, I need to find this like weird boy <laughs> that thinks he's, that like thinks he's an adult that's in love with an older woman. And Sofia Coppola was like, it's like right out of a West Airbnb movie. That reminds me of my cousin. Like points across the room and Jason Swartzman standing there with the cane and he was in love with his nanny apparently. Jesus. And like, and like had all the attributes like that this that they described that the casting director described and I got to watch some really cool sessions with uh, um, casting sessions with Schwartzman and Wes Anderson you, you could tell he's just totally the guy Wes Anderson's been looking for and uh, they immediately hit it off by the way a little crossover here they immediately hit it off uh, talking about uh, Weezer's Pinkerton which has just been released of course and the lyrics of those songs and all that stuff and then God that was, damn you have Jeff Japanese girls. And that was the, the and it went from the there. most Wes Anderson fan lyric of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, between that and then Bill Murray just gets a hold of the script. You know, Wes Anderson gets it to him, obviously, but he's a weird person to get a script to and just gets a phone call from Bill Murray like a week later and is like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so, hugest luck out on that. And Bill Murray is just such a big part of. Wes Anderson's filmmaking career. It's a shame that he recently had some issues with on-set behavior because by all Wes Anderson describes him as a big part of why he loves working with him, not just because he's such a great actor that's so perfect for Wes Anderson movies, especially the way he approached films in his later career, but also apparently he he looked at him as such an ad, uh, like a plus uh, for sets. Like he was just kept, you know, Apparently, just like kept morale high, he said. Wes Anderson said it said he could like speak to the masses in a way that mm. like was unique and and rare and yeah, uh, wow, uh, really amazing. So yeah, this era for Bill Murray, he was in like Kingpin, and you know he was the surprise cameo in Space Jam, totally, and his like starring movies were you know the man who knew too little and larger. Like he was really at a crossroads in his career yeah probably groundhog day was probably the last thing he did good you know big thing he did and honestly like i feel like it just it, personally he was like ready for a big change he'd probably been playing the same character in the same kind of comedy for years up to that point i just remember being so thrilled and taking aback by his performance in rushmore uh i love this quote from him about what he connected to in the script he said uh the struggle to retain civility and kindness in the face of extraordinary pain and I've felt a lot of that in my life I think that's beautiful and that really does encapsulate there's a moment in Rushmore that I always think about and I don't know why but the moment where he steps out of his car and then he turns back and his shitty sons have locked him out of the car <laughs> and he just looks he just goes unlock it and there's just <laughs> something so like real and frustrating and 
it just connect to that moment. So it just resonates in this bizarre way with me that it's a moment in a movie that clicks into my head every now and again. And, and, and Wes Anderson has so many of those moments in his films, too. These just weird, I don't know why this connects with me so much. I don't know why I'm so, I feel so just, this is like somehow speaking for me in my life, but it do, it just does. And I just can't get enough of it. You know, you know, it's the mask falling off in a lot of ways. There's definitely, you know, that this, 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 that, in, uh, there's a line from the book I read about Wes Anderson's work that's like, uh, just that gnawing feeling that like no amount of intelligence can like protect you from just the agony of mortal existence. <laughs> I love this quote. I think this is from Grand Budapest, but I could be wrong. You see, there's still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, right? That's like it perfectly encapsulates the, the, the high-minded, like sophisticated mixed with the like ragged. I mean, fuck, William, Willem Dafoe's character and that whole damn movie oh, is just such a perfect contrast to like everything Ray Fiennes is, you know, <sighs> and and he does that time and time again. And I, again, I just it 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 flips something in my brain, it like flips a light on in my brain that just tickles me. God, so I much. love and anytime Willem Dafoe is on screen in a Wes Anderson movie, I am just smiling like a shit. Ass. He's so good. I think he started in Life Aquatic. I believe was his first. I can't. I, I don't. I hope that I got that straight. And he is just the best character actor in his movie. He's just always something <laughs> unique and different and fun in all of his movies. And it's so and yet awesome always an intense little gremlin. Yeah, just there's something about Willem Dafoe being a weird little gremlin man in his movies. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So one, one other thing before we move on to the Royal Tannenbaums. One theme is children behaving like adults with the character of Max and adults behaving like children with the character played by Bill Murray. Anderson said, he's having a major crisis in his life, but I don't know if it's exactly adolescence. It's more just bad behavior. There's no reason we have to limit that to young people, though sometimes that behavior does seem kind of juvenile. One of the things I like to dramatize is what is sometimes funny is someone becoming unglued. I don't consider myself someone who is making the argument that I support these choices, but still you do see it so, so much. And you really get it with uh, the father character, the Gene Hackman character mm-hmm. in Royal Royal Tannenbaums so well. And you see it uh, over and over again. And then also, uh, you know, Moonrise Kingdom is a great example of this. But again, also children weirdly acting like adults is something you see time and time again. I think that's very J.D. Salinger, Glass Family inspired 
for sure, because that would they, you get a lot of that in those books or those short stories and in, in, in Franny and Zoe. But uh, but yeah, it, it, that that is constantly pushing towards this interesting comedy that's based on like opposites, essentially. And a lot of comedy is based in opposites. But uh, Anderson said, most of the time my focus is on, I want you to believe that the character is feeling this and this is true and really happening. Usually I don't feel this is a comic scene or not a comic scene. Almost always there is some kind of mixture and I'm inclined to just let it be not one or the other, which I think sometimes makes it a little challenging. And I do think because, I don't know, I mean, all of his movies are comedy. I don't uh, have at least a strong comedy element in them. I don't think he's ever made a non straight up non comedy movie. But uh, you're right; it is always this mix, which I think is again such a sucker punch for me. Mm-hmm. I just always love to be laughing, 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 and then something incredibly <laughs> meaningful and touching happens, like the whole ending of Royal Tannenbaum's. You know, if anything, it yeah, it makes it all the more pure. Like that, like. The movies kind of lull you in and like let it into your heart through the comedy and the visuals and everything. You know, there's so much visual storytelling and yet there's so much left to the imagination that it, you know, again, there is a level of Gen X dude ironic detachment that. I resonate with personally. That's a lot of my favorite uh, creators uh, growing up were uh, detached Gen X dudes. And it's uh, just, it really, truly just, yeah, is just my tempo in a lot of ways. And like, I can understand, again, I just have to reiterate, like, I get it if you don't like his movies. It's the, you know, it's not like he, he's never gone out of his way to like, tell the story of like a non-white person or a gay person or even the women in his movies are either like these like beautiful capable like femme fatale like uh super women or like naive like objects of desire or like cigarette smoking kind of like gruff like like weirdly like comfortable in the world of these broken men never like kind of breaking it it's, you know, so in many, many, many ways, I can understand why uh, a lot of people maybe, you know what, to all the girlfriends in college forced to sit down and watch Life Aquatic on a DVD, <laughs> on a, on one of those portable DVD players on a futon. I can, I can see how like the movie lost you like the third time Bill Murray let out a, a slur. <laughs> I can, I can easily see you being like, I don't actually like this that much, but you know, Within the world of uh, sad 12-year-old boys. Ooh, God, it's good. Ooh, it hits just right. Esteban was eaten. Is he dead? <laughs> uh, so before we get to Life Aquatic, I will say- He's got say, hydrogen psychosis. <laughs> before, before we you get You got to, the crazy eyes. Got the crazy eyes. Before we get to that one, I will say, yes, of course, Rushmore really started it go, going in this direction, but Royal Tenenbaums fully cemented Wes Anderson's auteur style, I feel. And, though, uh, and it is co-written with Owen Wilson. It took them two years to finish the screenplay due to its complex nature. And though it was uh, loosely based on his parents' divorce. You also have the child prodigy stuff based on the Glass family and J.D. Salinger's works. And a stronger influence is the Orson Welles film The Magnificent Ambersons about a wealthy Midwestern family whose fortunes begin to wane, a film I really want to see after doing this research. Uh, the the brother-sister-in-love stuff is inspired by the film Les Enfants Terribles, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. And finally, 
the suicidal character has roots in the French, French film The Fire Within. Uh, it, 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 his influences are varied, obviously, with a lot rooted in French film, uh, definitely French Renaissance Italian film as well. Uh, uh, that that kind of that time period, especially in like the '60s mm-hmm. of auteur French Italian filmmaking. There's tons and tons of influence there. A lot of books too, because we got to remember he was a big short story reader. And apparently, the Magnificent Ambersons isn't just a great uh, film; it's also a really great book that he read and enjoyed. And so you're always going to get a lot of literary influences when it comes to his work. Too many to name, honestly. Like, you could take any one movie. So one thing I've noticed in in researching his stuff, like, let take The French Dispatch, for example. Uh, it's always, he's always stacking, like, two to three things into one, mm-hmm. like, concept for a film. So with uh, The French Dispatch, he wanted to make three different movies, and he just combined them. He wanted to make an anthology film. He wanted to make a film just in set in and all about France and his love for France because he, he lives uh, kind of part-time in Paris. He has an apartment there. <laughs> and then also uh, a, fi- a love letter to The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And then he just put the three together, and that's usually the kind of thing, you know, we're talking about here, like, when, when it comes to a movie uh, of his. So, yeah, and then the, all the influences for that stuff are all very specific, and uh, they're so varied. And and he just likes to stack stuff like that to create the product. I, in the Grand Budapest Hotel, the movie mm-hmm. is shot in, like, three different classic film ratios. Yes. Where, like, the actual aspect, the screen size shifts from era to era as we move through time. As, like, kind of, again, a... Uh, just a weird reference, homage, love letter to these kind of defunct styles of filming that we don't see anymore. Totally. In terms of set design for Royal Tannenbaums, now scenes were particularly framed. Wes Anderson had his brother Eric illustrate the rooms in the house and things like that, and then handed that stuff over to the art department. Eric even illustrated the family to show uh, Gene Hackman as another... Uh, Eric even illustrated the family so that they could send that to Gene Hackman as another way to convince him to do the film. They actually had a really hard time getting him to do the movie because they couldn't offer him a ton of money. I believe he did it for scale, mm. but uh, they they fought really hard to get him in the picture, and he was pretty reluctant and then I think was pretty happy once it was all said and done. This was also the first time we do in Royal Tannenbaum's get that big ensemble cast that... Uh, we now know and love with all of his movies. And um, and even in this movie, we have all these reoccurring players, Owen and Luke Wilson, Bill Murray, but you also get Angelica Houston, who becomes a very strong regular for him, uh, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Anderson said, oh, uh, Willem Dafoe, I believe, comes in Life Aquatic, Jeff Goldblum as well. Anderson said, there's an energy that comes from people who are friends. Whatever chemistry is on set is going to be there in the movie, and you want some electricity that you don't really control. And that also is why I love this. One of my favorite things I learned about this, he almost always has everybody like living together. Like mm-hmm. in Grand Budapest Hotel, they all lived on like a floor in the hotel. French Dispatch, they all most all lived in a house together and would have dinner every single night. Ray Fiennes was even apparently like, well, what if I want to do something else? Like, what if I don't want to eat dinner with everybody? It's like, go do something else. Eat wherever you want. But And then he said, but Ray Fiennes ate with the, the cast every single night and crew. And, you know, there's just such a... Like he also I talked about how 
the mood on set, I mean, it's very tense. It's very active work. There's there's a lot of stress and stuff going on. And so it's very important because actors do tend to like come together and are attracted to each other. And it's important to also have the evening after, you know, stuff gets wrapped to to spend quality time together and like have fun together. And, oh, and yeah. it just added to the chemistry on set so much. The um I know we're not talking about life aquatic yet, but uh the uh, there we was kind of are we're about we're pretty much in life aquatic at this point. You know, it was uh, Willem Dafoe has a quote from an interview in 2015 where he says, on some level, a director has to be a good general. And speaking about Wes, he says, and he is a beautiful general. The troops love him and he's clear about what he wants to do. Uh, there was a short documentary filmed on the set of Life Aquatic by Criminal Minds' own. Uh, Matthew Gray Goobler, who plays uh, Dr. Spencer Reed on that classic procedural crime show. Um, and he played the intern, you know, the the curly haired intern whose uh, kind of troubles on the boat is chronicled throughout the movie. And he uh, was Wes Anderson's own intern uh, when he was going through the NYU film program. And he was so like he was immediately the first one to call when he needed a head intern in this movie. And, you know, a lot of this footage shows the exact kind of camaraderie that you're talking about. All of these actors, Jeff Goldblum, Bill Murray, Angelica Houston, are all just like on this boat in the middle of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And like they're cold, they're shivering, they're just like waiting around uh, because like they have to just get everybody on the boat and shoot their scenes all day. So it's a lot of sit around and wait. Um and they ate together. Bill Murray, whenever he was like on set, was just like constantly keeping everybody's like uh, morale up, dancing around, joking around with the cast and crew. And even uh, Sue George, who uh, I'm sure that's not how you pronounce his very Brazilian name, uh, who sang all the David Bowie covers in Life Aquatic, like even came up with like theme songs throughout the production. And by the end, they're all singing along. And it looked like this incredibly like intimate kind of joyous process even as as i uttered uh they were cold in the middle of like a rainy boat in the middle of the sea i definitely think it's a large reason why these great talents come back together time and time again to make movies with him uh you know obviously the films are great and the scripts and everything but i do think it's because they just want to get back together into that situation again and all be hanging out and and spending time together in that way which is very different from other film sets other film sets and he talks about this he doesn't want people to get like stuck in their trailers he doesn't mm -hmm. like that vibe he also doesn't like um the whole kind of basic approach to going to set spending time getting into hair and makeup the, the re so the, to fix this because he wants people to show up to work and start working so to fix this he does uh he gets the actors in hair and makeup like at the house they're staying at mm. they all get in a costume and hair and makeup and then they drive to the set and then once they're on the set they're working instead of like i get to set i mosey over to the craft services table get some snacks go over to the, you know, hair and makeup, I'm on my phone, I'm doing whatever, I'm kind of detached from the work. And and I think that's, again, just some really cool, interesting, different ways to do things that is exactly why we get these incredible performances out of these incredible ensemble casts. And the chemistry is always amazing in Wes Anderson movies, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, with Life Aquatic, 
he wrote a short story in college based on the uh, aquatic explorer Jacques Cousteau. Uh, and this film is not co-written with Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson now, it's like a shocker to everybody. Honestly, his, his he, he blows the fuck up in terms of his acting career. He's Lightning McQueen, baby. Ka-chow. Yeah. Ain't no stopping the Wilson train. Hugely successful. And then unfortunately ends up having struggles with addiction, ends up in rehab at points too. So he largely gets, he's kind of in and out when it comes to uh, working on Wes Anderson films, depending on the project and whatnot. But uh, this film was co-written by Noah Baumbach, amazing director. I would always, I would do his own episode. I fucking love Squid and the Whale. I love uh, what Marriage Speaking Story. of sad boy movies. Speaking of sad boy movies, like this was a time for me where I was like, these were like the dudes in my, that I most admired in terms of filmmakers. Still really are. I, I love their work. And so, of course, he co-wrote that with Noah Baumbach. Um, Anderson said this about the uh, titular character, Steve Zissou, played by Bill Murray. I think that he's somebody who's very caught up in his own sense of failure. All his anger, everything that's unpleasant about him, I think is a result of how unhappy he is about how he's slipped. He doesn't even quite express it even to himself until about two-thirds into the movie when it all comes crashing down and he just can't avoid it. But I feel that in all the movies that I've done, the idea of failure has been a little more appealing than the idea of success. Anyways, more interesting and more sympathetic to me. And the reason why I included that quote is exactly that. It's it's such a reoccurring theme in his films, this failed man, you know, that's that's like trying to pick up the pieces, that's trying to hold it all together, that's confidently doing it too until about two-thirds the way into the movie, mm-hmm. and then they just fucking give up completely. Then he falls down the stairs. Man, the part where Max in Rushmore, when he goes through his like bad, I don't give a fuck phase... Mm-hmm. I connected with that so fucking hard from like when I got like kicked out of acting school and in high school when I finally gave up on the girl I had the crush on and just started like being in a rock band. I just it's smoking cigarettes. I just totally it just resonates so much with this this concept as well. Uh, but still, the film, which continued in the Wes Anderson trademark style, I did not realize this, received a lot of like critical backlash at this point, seemingly due to the fact that the filmmaking approach was just so specific and similar to his previous films. The, the movie ended up gaining more of a cult status and has been reevaluated in recent years, and that surprised me. I thought his next film was the first one that was like, all right. Yeah. But apparently it didn't get super lauded by critics, which is surprising. You know what it is? The problem with uh, Life Aquatic is like by this point, we were already going to like uh, Halloween parties in college where everybody would show up in the red caps as yeah. like an easy Team Zisu cost- yeah, yeah, costume. Totally. And, and, I don't know. It's just, I was a little shocked to hear critically it didn't go so well just because I feel like a lot of people you talk to, that's their favorite one. Is life aquatic? I think you know. In our study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew every Sunday, fifteen dollars a month. You can join us in Discord for the study session. Quite a few people were like, "Life Aquatic's my that's mine. That's my fave." And I, 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 it's not my favorite. I absolutely love it. It's up there for me. But I totally get it, and and I think it is one of the top, one of his best. His next film, to me, was his first misstep. Is his only misstep, in my opinion. I don't know if there is another movie that I'm like, nah. When it comes to his repertoire, but the Darjeeling Limited is something I need to rewatch too. I think as well. I, I I only saw it once in the theater. I think I should give it another shot because I felt like it was very ambling and didn't really understand that. Didn't really have a full sense of itself or what it wanted to do. 
It's it kind of felt like that kind of movie where it was like, and now we go here, and now we go here, and this thing happens here, and then we go here, but it didn't seem to connect to me. It didn't seem to pull together for me, but I would like to reevaluate. Darjeeling Limited starred Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, and Adrian Brody. Uh, Anderson wished to celebrate India, and one character, or director in particular, whom he the film was dedicated to, uh, Satyajit Ray. Anderson said Ray's films were, quote, part of my inspiration to want to make movies. Uh, the whole thing, a lot of it exists on a train. He was insistent the train be moving, actually moving at all times. Of course, we get really cool train stuff in Grand Budapest Hotel. Apparently, it was very hard between the oceanic stuff from Life Aquatic and this. Very difficult to film uh, in that way. But uh, I, I don't know. What, what do you think? What Do you feel the same way that I did? It was the only time I was like, I don't know if I'm... I don't know. I've never seen it. This is one I completely missed when it was released, and it was one I completely missed when it was time to catch up on some movies during our week of research. Just genuinely did not. Well, Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody play three broken men, shocker. What? And they're brothers, and it's kind of a lot about like getting rid of baggage physically, literally, and figuratively, and... Uh, Oh, I did watch the uh, short film prologue he released uh, online that had Natalie Portman's button. Yes. I did watch that, but for very different yet still sad boy reasons. Totally. I I think with Darjeeling Limited, it was the smartest thing for him to do was the next movie he made, which was Fantastic Mr. Fox, where he totally changes gears towards the world of animation. And also the film is based on a children's book written by Ronald Dahl. I think this is the first time he adapted something. Uh, and Anderson, Wes Anderson said he was trying to imagine what Ronald Dahl might have, uh, how he might have done it himself. They modeled aspects of the film directly on Ronald Dahl himself, actually, including his house and surrounding area, as well as his uh, the elements of the author's personality. So they actually went to Ronald Dahl's home and spoke, I believe, with his They worked with his wife, I believe. Uh, Anderson teamed up with Henry Selick for the animation. He did the animated bits in Life Aquatic. However, Selick left to work on Neil Gaiman's Coraline at one point and was replaced by Mark Gustafson. Anderson said, I've always loved stop motion animation, and I particularly wanted to do stop motion with puppets that have fur for whatever reason that is. <laughs> I've always liked that. That is the one thing. I There's some people that cannot stand Fantastic Mr. Fox just because of the like literally un- inescapable uh, aspect of the fact that if you have characters with fur in a stop motion film it's going to be vibrating all over the place because like it it can't sit still yeah as you're shooting it frame by frame and like um i heard someone tell me that like it's you know it reminds them of like one of those creepy christmas specials they used to have to watch of course that's what he based off of he said yeah some of the stop motion i've always liked i like the harry Housen movies and i like the holiday specials that are on tv by the rankin bass company and those are the kind of uh, a bit primitive stop motion but uh i found it incredibly charming when i watched it for the first time this week and it oh for sure it really like i think because it's a children's movie it it can like finally let go of some of that existential just gravity that can kind of like really uh hit you in the gut you know you know uh it's it's george clooney as mr fox and like he kind of doubts himself a little but like he just gets to be cool for the rest of the movie it's it's a, a bit more playful it's also an adaptation i think was very smart for him to to switch gears into uh you know that because it just forces him to tell a slightly different story as well 
but yeah, I totally agree. I think I think it's such a charming film. I think I think it's one of his most like whimsical and and just fun and fluffy. And George Clooney kills it. The whole cast is incredible, of course, as always. But uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to take a little uh, sidetrack here. Actually, I wanted to talk about how he puts together those fabulous soundtracks. I mean, I lo- I don't know if there's a better soundtrack in the business than a Wes Anderson soundtrack, and it actually comes from his collaboration with a guy named Randall Poster. Uh, he's been working with him since Bottle Rocket, and uh, he's the one who helps him choose the songs. Poster is not a musician or anything, but he wrote a movie developed at Sundance Institute called A Matter of Degrees. This was about a college radio station and had a bunch of great music in it, which must have stood out to Anderson when they met. Poster said, with Rushmore and the Royal Tannenbaums, we knew we had certain songs that we were going to try and use in the film. So it sort of becomes a bit of a game to use as many of them as we can. I think one of the reasons why the work Wes and I have done together on the music side of things has been as potent as it has been is that we spend a lot of time between movies thinking about the music. So going into a film, they already kind of have these, these thoughts, these concepts of songs they can use. But a big thing that Poster has to deal with is securing the rights. Sometimes you're dealing with bands where the guys in the band haven't talked to each other, or there's history and animosity, or there's a member of the band who doesn't want the music used. Humanity enters into each situation, so it can get complicated and messy, but we do pretty well. One of Poster's favorite examples involving rights and song usage in the film is Cat Stevens' Here Comes My Baby and Rushmore, which is one of the most iconic song moments in that movie, And that came at a time when Cat Stevens really hadn't licensed his shit. Poster said that was the first time he allowed his music for any Cat Stevens to be used in a film in many years. I think it's one of those iconic Wes Anderson cinematic moments that I think will thrill people forever. In fact, I believe I read that Poster, when Poster met Wes Anderson, uh, Wes Anderson was trying to get a song in his movie, I forget which one, in Bottle Rocket. And he was like, I can get you that song. And he was like, really? And then he got him the song. And that's what kind of got him this <laughs> lifelong gig as like music selector for all different types of movies and especially Wes Anderson. Also, shout out to uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, who did a lot of the scoring on movies like um, Life Aquatic, mm-hmm. I believe Rushmore, and a couple of others he's in the mix. And that very like innocent, tinkly kind of piano and synth sound that is associated like if you're doing a um if you're doing a Wes Anderson parody if you're not just playing an old garage rock hit from the 60s and 70s you are adding some tinkly little like synth and piano sounds and that is 100% Devo's own Mark Mothersbaugh so cool uh, responsible for that sound so his next movie I think if you were like a person who has enjoyed Wes Anderson's movies but kind of lost track you know maybe you saw Royal Tannenbaum's his earlier works Life Aquatic and then fell off definitely go watch Moonrise Kingdom Mm. it is so fucking good it's just so strong in my opinion really beautiful wonderful like young love story uh, which, which has all the Wes Anderson stables incredible cast as always And it really does attempt to capture that incredible, all-encompassing feeling of falling for someone for the first time as a child. Anderson said, What I wanted to do was recreate the feeling of that memory. The movie is kind of like a fantasy, and I think I would have had at that age, when you're 11 or 12 years old, you can get so swept up in a book that you start to believe that the fantasy is reality. I think when you have a giant crush when you're in fifth grade, it becomes your whole world. It's like being underwater. Everything is different. 
And I just absolutely agree so wholeheartedly. It's just it's just so wonderful. And and also there's a lot of stuff in there of like uh, school plays. I love the stuff they do with the school plays in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Of course, Wes Anderson acted in a lot of and wrote and stuff and a lot for a lot of school plays growing up. And yeah, it's always uh, fun and nost- there's something like weirdly nostalgic about his stuff, even though you're nostalgic for a time that didn't exist mm-hmm. because it's a totally made up world. It's really interesting. Anything you want to say about Moonrise Kingdom before we just keep rocking? To, as we I think we can keep going. Grand Budapest Hotel, we watched it together, released in 2014. Uh, it's probably his largest, most impressive ensemble cast up to this point, except for I think uh, Asteroid City might beat it uh, when that comes out. Uh, yeah, it's got Ray Fiennes, F. Marie Abraham, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Swarcy Ronan, Tilda Swinton, Edward Norton Jr., uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, or is it just Edward Norton? Edward Norton, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, and Owen Wilson, among others, all making an appearance. And also, shout outs to Tony Re- uh, Revolori, who plays young Zero Mustafa, his first big role in a movie. He will also be in Asteroid City, which is fun. Uh, he he is great in it, and it would be so intimidating to do a movie like that with all those great actors. I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, he plays Flash Thompson in the MCU Spider-Man movies. He's set for life. He's oh uh, yeah, he's good to go. This film came from a collaboration with Hugo Guinness, someone he has worked with for several years at this point. Hugo is an artist, illustrator, and writer who has contributed artwork to the Royal Tannenbaums and the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and is best known for his illustrations in the New Yorker, New York Times, and Vogue. This movie is a love letter to pre-war Europe and the work of Austrian novelist Stefan Zweig. And even though I prefer Moonrise Kingdom, if I had to rank them. But this may be the most Wes Anderson-ass Wes Anderson movie that's that's come out up to this point. What, what did you think upon seeing it for the first time? I think it was oh, my third time watching it. Was my, yeah, uh, I watched it for the first time alongside the Sunday study session. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Find out how you can join our weekly get-together where we uh, watch, enjoy, and discuss future topics on the show live with our Patreon donors. Um, and yeah, no, all the... The uh, quaint, you know, the cute little colorful outfits are there in the hotel uniforms. The like, uh, just the bombardment of holy shit acting uh, uh, cameos and roles. Uh, you know, the entire thing with the like uh, the Society of the Crossed Keys or whatever that is, the secret brotherhood of concierges, uh-huh. just like just boom, 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 boom. So, Bob, so fuck so it, here's incredible. Bob Balaban <laughs> again. Very good Willem Dafoe gremlin acting. Uh, and, and yes, the, I mentioned the things with the shifting aspect ratios, the like, uh, homages to the power of writing and writers and authors as a subject matter in the film, which is kind of the framing device for everything. And, uh, even just a dedication to using like era appropriate special effects with miniatures and models and matte paintings during like some of the more bombastic chase sequences in the film. Like it's, it's absolutely lovely. And also has those real gut punch moments. It's full of comedy and intrigue and slapstick and just like quiet little moments of human sadness that really just kind of covers everything we've been talking about. And also there's a young love in the film as well. It's, it's kind of all there, uh, a respect for the past or a, a uh, urge to return to the innocence and intensity of a uh, pre-teenage uh, existence. It's yeah, no, it is, it is, Maybe the easiest to kind of just like, oh, you want to know what Wes Anderson's about? 
here you go. Totally, totally. With some with some heavier elements too. Obviously, they deal with in vague ways. There's not swastikas mm-hmm. or anything like that in it, but they definitely deal with the rise of of Nazism in in Europe. And uh, you know, he goes places kind of darker and deeper than he has in the past, at least in terms of like a historical perspective but uh yeah it really just has it all kind of has every little note and every fucking actor he's ever worked with at that point up to that point anderson's uh had this to say on planning and actors we plan the shots and the sort of editing in a way and the construction of the sets and the design of the sets even if it's on locations this is all very carefully planned and we kind of do this step by step and we gather all the ingredients and we have it very prepared so that when the day comes to shoot everything is sort of quiet set in that way but the actors I feel like what happens is they we all get together they come on the set and then it's just sort of chaos and they take over and it goes one way or another and we tend to do a lot of takes but very very quickly one right after another and anything might happen on the next take and I think that's a great insight to his working process a I feel like that's how that's what makes everything come to life like in a way that doesn't happen if it's just the bare set, right? Mm-hmm. That's what makes it living and moving, and that's what brings the chaos, and that's what brings the the this this more frenetic energy. And I, I like the idea of it's a lot of quick shots, and th- therefore when we go back to why he likes everybody to get ready and then come to set, and when you're on set, you're there to work. I think it's a pretty fast-paced working environment. He wants everything to be quick. Mm-hmm. He wants everything to happen quickly. Uh, when it comes to like actors getting on set, getting their takes, getting it done, he likes that to be very fast and and rapid in, in succession. I and thought that was really interesting. Just for like a little bit of perspective for like what we're talking about, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel is to date Wes Anderson's highest grossing movie. I believe it clocked in at one hundred and seventy two million dollars, which for, you know, an indie di- or an ostensibly indie director, even though all of his. Most of his movies have had major studio backing. Uh, is this is it? This is as like popular as like uh, as universal as he could possibly be, and it still ranks forty six in terms of box office for that year, twenty fourteen. Wow! Uh, Hunger Games made twice as much money. Guardians of the Galaxy made twice as much money. The Lego Movie made twice as much money. Transformers made just as much money. But it's it's kind of interesting that like. We're in an era now, like we're all, like the year Grand Budapest Hotel came out, we were we're already in on the uh, major franchise thing. We're like we're in the post postmodern world of modern filmmaking. And it's it really is like he's like the only guy with such a distinctive style and such a niche that can still like command productions without notes and like make movies as he sees fit with a significant budget, with a significant cast of honest to God movie stars with, without like, you know, without just having to compromise or do, or you know what it is? He never has to do one for them. You know what? Like every other director with some kind of integrity has like fallen into the one for me, one for them, one for me, one for them pattern. 
and he's never done one for them. Anderson said, I've done a bunch of movies, and it's a luxury to me that they're all whatever I've wanted them to be. And though he's only been nominated a handful of times for Oscars and has never won, uh, he's only been nominated for Best Director once, and that was for Grand Budapest Hotel. He said, I think the resentful side of me will only come out when I'm unable to get a movie made. Mm. Uh, He does not care about, you know, he's always surprised at how well or poorly any of his movies do with critics and audiences. He has no idea. He's just always making them for himself. Uh, He said, the experience of making a movie is quite emotional. It's usually an inspiring experience. There are different days uh, along the way, and it takes a bit out of you, but I love doing it. That is the first thing for me. It's about the experience of doing the whole thing all the way through, and when it's completely finished, and then you just have no idea what's going to happen. But I'm always hoping that it's going to find an audience, because that's what I need to do my next movie. What situation I find myself in as I start the next one is completely dictated by that and and so that really is the end game it's just like get me back into the process of making films that's all I care about that's all I want and I totally get that it's so freeing his next film after Grand Budapest Hotel Isle of Dogs Return to Animation for Anderson it was released in 2018 it is still inspired by that Rankin Bass Productions it was also inspired though by the films of Akira Kurosawa and Hayao Miyazaki he worked with the same folks for the stop animation the cast is just ridiculously packed <laughs> you just got, I can't even continue to say the names of everybody in his cast uh, did you catch Isle of Dogs? I, I meant to watch it all week I know it's, it's, it's on Disney Plus. I know it's you'll, cute. You'll, you'll enjoy it. You'll like it. it it's awesome. It, it's beautiful. And and uh, just an, a solid one. I, in terms of my rankings, it's not like high up there, but that's just because there's so many movies of his that I love, and this one's just absolutely sta- uh, solid. Yeah, good to know. I know it still has that weird like twitching fur aesthetic, so you know I'm bracing sure. myself. A uh, little sidetrack here to talk about Anderson's director of photography. Uh, he said, my director of photography is very aware of what we do and don't do. He and I have worked together for many, many years, and he knows that there are certain kinds of angles that I'm not going to have, and there are certain ways that I want things set up that are the way I like it, which is just based on things that I've liked, that I've seen other people do, and things I develop along the way for myself. You, of course, have those big wide frame shots where you get like this whole space and the characters right in the center. We've seen that a billion times. That zoom in, that like fast zoom mm-hmm. on what somebody's doing from afar. These little tricks and things we see in a lot of his films. That DP's name is Robert Yeoman, by the way, and he has had that role in every one of Wes Anderson's live action movies going all the way back to Bottle Rocket. He's been an, uh, an indie film master, having done stuff since the 80s, including Gus Van Zandt's Drugstore Cowboy and the video game movie starring Fred Savage and Ginny Lewis titled The Wizard. Weird. Yeah, he DP'd that. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Yeoman said so many times he would say to me, oh, this is the kind of shot I'm looking for, and I'll think to myself, how am I going to do that? And it's impossible, but we always find a way of doing it, and that's a big part of working with him. We always find a way of pulling it off. What a weird mixture of movies. I He did Bridesmaids. Uh-huh. He did Whip It with Drew Barrymore. He did Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. So crazy. And then all of Wes Anderson's movies, and the, and it, the cinematography is one of the strongest elements of a Wes Anderson film, and this guy is that guy, you know? I mean, it's really incredible. The fact that they started all the way at Bottle Rocket is yeah. kind of crazy. Wild. You know, I, I listened to the director's commentary of Bottle Rocket, and they were like, yeah, we loved Drugstore Cowboy, and as soon as we got that Jim Brooks money, we were like, do you think we can get him? 
and we did. That's amazing. The French Dispatch came after Isle of Dogs. It's an anthology film. We've already talked about it. Uh, story credits go to Anderson as well as Roman Coppola, Hugo Guinness, and Jason Schwartzman. Roman Coppola, we haven't really discussed much, but he's also majorly a part of his stable of collaborators. Roman Coppola has co-written stuff. I believe he co-wrote Darjeeling Limited, among some other things. Maybe Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Regardless, though, he's super in the mix all the time. It's like Roman Coppola, Noah Baumbach, Owen Wilson are his strong as like collaborators in terms of co-writing. I really hope that he ends up co-writing another film with Owen Wilson. I think that's the best team up. Mm. I mean, that's what gave us Royal Tannenbaums and Rushmore. I just think that the the mixture of their two voices, like Owen Wilson's comedic voice with Wes Anderson's like dry, like comedy styling mixed with the emotional depths is so strong. I, I would love for them to collaborate again at some point in terms of a scre- script writing sense. <laughs> Rushmore 2, back to the Academy. <laughs> this time he has to be a teacher. I would love it. Honestly, but it'll never happen. He'll never make a sequel. I don't think that'll ever, ever happen. But ah, you know, directors get like weird towards the end of their line. They like true. Beetlejuice too. Right, so I'm saying it's coming. Um, but anyways, yeah, French Dispatch is a fun little movie. I, I I really enjoyed it. Very charmed by it. It's I I love anthology films. The cast, of course, is absurd, but, uh, you know, definitely definitely a movie I need to watch again as well. I've only seen it once, so it's hard for me to collect my thoughts on that one in terms of how I felt in hindsight. But um, Anderson had this to say about the creating of the creating the look for his films. Usually when I'm making a movie, what I have in mind first for visuals is how we can stage the scenes to bring them more to life in the most interesting way. And then how we can make a world for the story that the audience hasn't quite been in before. The things that are more my own style are something that I don't really have to think about. The only time I have to think about them is if I want to force myself not to do it the way I do it, which is something I (laughs) talked about earlier. I thought was really interesting. And I think that that is so true on this next movie with the striking visuals. It, the trailer for Asteroid City just pops so hard. I'm so excited for this movie. I think it might end up being one of his best, just even just based off of a, a instinct I have from seeing the trailer. It's so cool. The, uh, the trailer Ast- makes it look like the ultimate Wes Anderson movie, man. It's, it's a science fiction romantic comedy drama. It centers around the events that take place at an annual Junior Stargazer convention in 1955. Here's the cast, uh, at least some of the cast. Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, Liev Schreiber. All of the champions. Maya Hawke, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Fisher Stevens, and many more. It is so stacked and insane. Is Willem Dafoe going to be there? You bet your fucking weird ass <laughs> Willem Dafoe's going to be there. It's really fucking wild. I cannot wait to see it. I think it will already come out the time of this recording. I am hoping to see it in a movie theater because I try to see them all that way. Uh, I, that's why the reason for this is why we, he was coming out with a new one, so why not? I, I hope he continues to make movies and well into old age. Because he's goddamn good at it, and I love that he's stuck to his guns, and that he's stayed, you know, stayed within this auteur visual style. I just think it's it's great, and I think more than anything else, he's just so surprisingly funny. I I, I laugh so hard that one. All, another moment in Grand Budapest, where he's like, "So let me get this straight. She's been murdered, and you you believe I've done it?" Yes, and they're like, "Yes." He just literally <laughs> just like, and then just turns around and just starts running the opposite <laughs> direction. All the officers start chasing him. It's like. 
It's not even doing it justice describing it. Obviously, you have to see it, but it's one of the funny, most like strikingly funny moments in vis- in physical comedy that I've seen mm-hmm. in in some time. And it's in a Wes Anderson movie, and there's so many of those. There's so many iconic comedy moments in uh, a movie by a filmmaker that I think people often mistake for being very like stuffy and rigid and Mm -hmm. this and that. And that's why I just think the brilliance of his films uh, comes really shines through is, is that mixed with the, the emotional depth that we can get with these characters that seem so surfacey and, and funny and, and dumb and whatever. And then all of a sudden you're like crying about their relationship with their father. And I just really appreciate that. Can I, can I, can I give a closing thought? Sure. So for a hot second, I was trying to justify like, you know, Wizard and the Bruiser is a nerd and nerd adjacent podcast. And does Wes Anderson fit the bill? Mm. And the conclusion I really came to was that Wes Anderson is makes movies almost that can almost only be appreciated by those touched with like just the, the kiss of the dork, of the geek, of the socially awkward young person because number one the movies are so crisp and clear visually like you can feel the texture of the items in the room you are like so immersed in the details that he lavishly places all over every scene in the film the cutaways the close-ups the i like the the physicality of each individual item of import down to like the paper stock on letters are so like you know it's incredibly immersive you he gives you so many details that allow you to like really appreciate and involve yourself in the world the characters themselves all of these scumbags and world weary internationals are so honest it is very rare that someone doesn't just like blurt out something that in a different screenwriter's hands would be some kind of unspoken thing you'd have to infer and in, like figure out on your own um, the way he uses montage and a lot of visual shortcuts to like get like important details through quickly and efficiently. And just the way he frames things like a stage play where if like two characters have an important like conversation, you are like there in it. The way he like lays the scene and presents the story within these like convoluted framing devices actually kind of helps you into to just get into the rhythm of the world he's building to the point where, like, I'm not saying, no, maybe I am saying, like, there's, it's, it, it, it lends itself to, uh, complicated, heartfelt, and like emotionally interesting movies that even if you're just a little kissed on the spectrum, you can like follow along and you can like feel and understand what these characters are doing and talking about and experiencing. In a way that is like weirdly, it resonates deeper and harder than a more obtuse filmmaker maybe would. And I think that's like kind of amazing and kind of magical. And part of the reason why I'm very confident doing an episode about Wes Anderson. Yeah, I couldn't put it better myself. What I'm saying is if you're a weird little freak, he makes great movies about weird little freaks and he does it in weird little freaky ways. Yeah, the phrase sometimes great at me, but yeah, I, he definitely makes me feel seen mm. for sure. And it's and it's the it's the combination of all of the things I've been describing over and over again in this episode, so I won't describe them again, but it's because it's like everything in a box that I that lights me up that that I really like. Uh, so yeah, I, I I saw that with French Dispatch maybe or Grand Budapest 
hotel. I'm not sure which one. There were rumors that it was going to be a musical, mm. and then it was confirmed that it wasn't. And I hope that there was maybe some truth to that at some point, and that maybe someday he'll make a musical. Because I think he'd be damn good at that, <laughs> and I would really love to see that. I would want to see so. an actual musical on Broadway that he <laughs> that's i want that would be incredible i i would be it would be fun uh, just a play a play honestly too from him would be so cool someone's definitely uh, tried sure. to pitch a rushmore broadway big like sure experience. and i'd love to see that vietnam play just yeah. it, within the it's so good all right well there you have it our episode on wes anderson thank you so much for joining us if you'd like to support us further go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew we for five dollars a month we've got incredible bonus content weekly episodes from jake and i as well as ad free episodes uh, of these main feed episodes you can get those through there pre-show links for our live show lastpodcastnetwork.com Check us out on that as well, dudes. Lastpodcastnetwork.com. We're all over the place all through this year up until around the holidays. We're performing in a town, hopefully, near you. Lastpodcastnetwork.com for tickets. And uh, check me out Monday through Friday streams. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. That's twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. And I am streaming all the time, baby. So check me out over there. Jake! I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but God damn it works it fucking works every week i do my goddamn little cartoon stream and one of you weirdos wanders and is like hey hey i finally showed up because you kept haranguing me at the end of your podcast episodes it's called the cartoon dumpster every thursday 7 p.m eastern standard time we watch bizarre forgotten animated shows from the 70s 80s 90s and today and we have ourselves a goddamn blast you can watch that Every Thursday, twitch.tv forward slash Puppet Jared or youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. It's a grand old uh, fucking TV party and you're invited. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And please, if you can, if there's anything else you walk away from this episode with, I just have to implore you. Keep on whizzing. Just whiz. Just, you gotta, you gotta whiz me. I'm whizzing in my mouth right now. <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.